Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa. Today is our middle March episode. All things related to chronological Disneyland. In order to tell that story, we need to bring in the man who is there himself, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I'm coming in like a lion, Len. Or, wait a minute, <laughs> hang on, I'm, I'm all fuzzy, I might be a lamb. Today, Jim, we're gonna, our main topic is uh, a continuation of our chronological Disneyland story. But before we do that, I, w- I wanna talk about the subject that happened earlier this year that we haven't really talked about, and that's the Disney ticket price increase that happened earlier in February. And Jim, I know that we talk every year about how expensive it is to visit Disney World. I'm not going to beat a dead horse with that. I've resigned myself to the fact that the people who go to Disney World know it's expensive and that Disney doesn't really care who is in their parks as long as they're getting their money. Here's the thing that I, I find is interesting. Buried in this ticket price increase announcement was news of another increase that's coming up later this year where Disney's going to switch it's multi-day tickets to seasonal pricing. Did you catch that? Yeah, I have to admit the other thing that, that was fascinating about this talking over the horizon was, do you see that thing where Iger was sort of putting out about the, well, you know, we may be going with tickets that lock you into a specific day of the week. Yeah. A lot of the stuff, things they're floating or things they're tossing out there ahead of the opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. What was your take on the seasonal ticket thing? What, what's the impact, uh, particularly for Orlando? The fact that they didn't announce the seasonal pricing in February mm-hmm. with everything else mm-hmm. tells me that it was a last minute decision to make the move. Okay. Because we know that Disney's been thinking about it since they introduced seasonal pricing for their single day tickets two years ago, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the next obvious step. Yep. In fact, I was frankly surprised they didn't do it last year. It does give Disney the opportunity to raise prices twice this year ahead of the opening of Galaxy's Edge. And actually what that means is they will get three price increases in because I expect, again, one in in February as well. I was moderately surprised that Disney didn't move to it now. And again, the the reason why they they may not have moved to it in February was to get that second price increase in. That's what I suspect. The other thing that I think is going to be interesting to see is this. You recall that... Seasonal pricing means that every day of the year costs a different amount of money to get into a Disney theme park, right? Mm -hmm. So Disney will break the calendar up into seasons, which are currently value, regular, and peak. And so value tickets cost the least amount of money. Regular tickets cost the middle amount and peak prices cost more. And I think the swing between them is about $20, $25 plus or minus. So for a family of four, you could save $100 by going on a value day versus a peak day. The thing that I think is going to be interesting from Disney's perspective is how they price out the multi-day tickets. Like, will you have to specify each day that you're going to be to a park so that Disney would be able to capture a mix of value, peak, and regular days if you decided to visit? Or are they going to do it like they do hotel rooms where whatever your start date on your ticket is, the pricing season that you get? And the one hand, that's simple to do that way, right? You don't have to worry about whether if you skip a day, or, you know, let's say you're going to be in Disney World for seven days, but you're only going to go visit the parks five days. Do you have to specify in advance which five days you're going to visit the parks? Because that's a hassle. The easiest way to do it would be for Disney to say, tell me the day on which you're first going to visit the park. Tell me how many days you're going to visit the parks, and we'll bill you that way. The more complicated one is where they're literally going to price you every single day, depending on which park you visit and which day you visit the park. That sounds insanely complicated to me. Yeah, but... What I'm hearing from the folks with ops, you know how there were actually these stories, in fact, people 
saw photographs of Disney doing the testing back when they, just before they opened Disney California Adventure, and they changed the setup of the ticket booths at Disneyland, the orientation of them. They actually set up the queue space in the parking lot. When I was talking with a friend at Ops, it's, it's sort of like what we're trying to do is between the number of people who buy their admission uh, material at home and print it out, coupled with the people who get it through their vacation package and have the room key, and in theory, they know how people are going to experience Galaxy's Edge. There's whole aspects of, you know, for example, the Grand Bazaar. Chris Beatty, the art director of this thing, was talking about how they went to Morocco, they went to Istanbul and actually visited the marketplaces And when they came back, Chris was very insistent about, look, I want what he called these dogleg streets so that you could see that the street continues, but you can't see where it goes. So you you have to go down this. And it's just sort of like, it's so counterintuitive to how Disney's done the lands before. I mean, face it, when you go to Epcot and you have those giant streets that you could walk through or... How many people can we actually get into this thing? How are they going to experience it? You and I just talked on our our last show about how long has Be Our Guest been open at this point? It was 2012, right? Yeah, it's been open uh, five years and they're still trying to figure out capacity on it. That's what I mean. These things take time, Jim. Oh, I understand. But it just with Galaxy's Edge, given that Disney's never invented a park like this before, they're legitimately freaked out. They don't know oh, yeah. how people are going to go through this. And so they're trying to second guess and they're trying to adjust admissions media out ahead of it. But at the same time, as an artificial sort of tapping on the brake, the whole notion of what if you show up at that park? You show up in Anaheim, you show up in Orlando, and you stand in a line for five and six hours outside of the land because you can't get in. Yeah, what do you do about food? What do you do about beverages? I mean, that's a there's a whole other infrastructure question there yeah, that's yeah. not Galaxy's Edge that has to be answered, right? How do you maintain your place in the line, whatnot? So, Jim, let me ask you a couple of questions here. Mm-hmm. I've heard rumors that the next revision of annual passes, especially in Disneyland, will be tiered in such a way that they may exclude Galaxy's Edge for some amount of time. Like in one rumor I heard, the annual passes in Disneyland will be tiered so that you won't be able to get into the AP preview of Galaxy's Edge unless you have the top of the line Disneyland pass. But are you hearing anything about any other blackout dates for Galaxy's Edge for annual pass holders in Disneyland? They actually did some survey work for this line and got a really big pushback. (laughs) Say, did they get the response that I expect they would have got on that? <laughs> Excuse me, the the people with their torches and pitchforks are here, sir. Yeah. Would you like to see the torches first or the pitchforks first? There we go. I mean, it's just there are so many people in, in Southern California who treat Disneyland like it's their fun place to just go hang out. It's their neighborhood bar. I mean, that's, that's what it is. It it's is. It's neighborhood bar, yeah. Oh, by the way, did you hear the retail program about what they're doing for Galaxy's Edge? I have not heard this. You know how you can go to the Wizarding World and you can't get a soda because that doesn't exist in the Wizarding World? So where you're going with this, Jim, is that there won't be hamburgers in Galaxy's Edge. There will only be Bantha burgers. That's where I think you're headed with this, but go ahead. If you go to the bazaar and go to the Toytarian's shop, they'll have in there what look like hand-tooled versions 
of the walkers. It's not a plastic thing that Disney went to one of its is one of participants and again had them licensed and that sort of thing. It, it's supposed to look like an artisan actually made it out of loose parts that they had and hammered it together. But again, there's a factory in China that's making these so they can be put on the store shelf. Really? So it's going to be a, a handmade looking. That's it, exactly. But you're on Batu. You're off world. There's not going to be a t-shirt. Because there aren't any t-shirts in the Star Wars universe. There we go. Now, mind you that supposedly... This is one of the reasons why people always ask, well, wait a minute, when Galaxy's Edge opens, does that mean Star Tours goes away? Or, or does his Tatooine Traders, which is outside? And it's like, well, no. If you want a Galaxy's Edge t-shirt, you have to go to Tatooine Traders because that's where the actual merchandise that you would get from a normal Disney theme park experience will be located. A, let me just say, I kind of appreciate the idea because you don't expect Han Solo to be running around in a Star Wars t-shirt in the movies. Mm -hmm. Totally makes sense. Okay. Also, you gotta say, that's a pretty clever way of getting people to another part of the park and into the shops, into the different shops. Because now they have to visit two shops, right? They visit the shops in Galaxy's Edge and then they visit Tatooine Traders. It's sort of the devious marketing that, not mark, not devious, uh, not necessarily marketing, but it's sort of that idea that always comes from Disney that ends up making them more money than you would have otherwise expected. I agree, but at the same time, it's one of these things where, like, from an operational point of view, the notion that all of these shops will be stocked with goods that look like they were handmade Think about what we just experienced with the Banshees over in, in Pandora. Yeah. By the way, let me repeat this line that, I, that somebody gave me on Twitter. Pandora will make a lovely Wakanda in a couple of years. <laughs> All right. I've said it. Okay. okay. You, know, you know who you are. Yes. Thank you very much for the line. I've stolen it. All right. Going back to Galaxy's Edge, though, do you think Disney will restrict Galaxy's Edge access early on to only certain kinds of annual passes? If we're talking California, I have to say yes. Because there are so many people who have bought the annual passes out there who pay it on a monthly basis. I can't tell you how many friends who either work for the company who were like, yeah, I'm on my blackout weekends, I can't go in. Or they've got a version of the pass that keeps them out of the park certain weekends or, or certain months out of the year. So yes, those folks, uh, especially with the price rises that are planned and there have been some conversations about restricting the number of annual passes largely because of this issue. I mean, look, long term, especially when the new Marvel land at full build out is up and running at DCA, the California situation will sort of right itself. Remember, we were just talking about Pandora and how we're almost a year in and we're, mm -hmm. we're still seeing those wait times not erode. Oh, they're incredible. Yeah. It's the attraction that has held its popularity longer than almost anything else I've ever seen. I mean, we'd have to go back maybe to 2005 to see, you know, Soren's introduction into Epcot, maybe. But that's going so far back that data aren't as reliable as they, as they are now. I'm still hearing from folks who work in ops at that park that they are still having an issue with the ride system for Flight of Passage overheating. They've learned to work with it, but it does impact capacity. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's difficult to track because they've got so many different theaters that they could operate on reduced capacity without having to send out a signal on my Disney experience 
saying the entire ride is closed. Mm-hmm. It's like mission space. They could operate on two of the four centrifuges if they needed to, and they wouldn't have to say that the ride was down, mm-hmm. but it would definitely impact wait times if the capacity was reduced by that much. You know, we just saw the Disneyland Paris announcement, but the Tokyo announcement of the third park there that's basically anchored with Pandora and Galaxy's Edge. What's funny is I guess the Oriental Land Company execs still want to be able to walk through Galaxy's Edge before they finally signed off on it. You mentioned that, and you mentioned the um, the big announcements that came out of Disneyland Paris as well, where they're adding... What, a Marvel area, a Star Wars area? And a Frozen area. And a Frozen area to Disneyland Paris. Yep. So the obvious question, why no Pandora in any other worldwide park? Now remember, in our last show, we did in fact talk about park number three for Disneyland Paris. They've got an artificial 2030 delivery date on that. They're announcing a 10-year program. This is $2.4 billion dollars spread out over 10 years. So that brings us up to 2028. Sure. I guess when it comes to Pandora, I'm kind of of a mind to watch this space. And remember, between now and 2028, we're going to have no less than three, depending on who you talk to, four Avatar movies out there. And this is a Disney that now, unless this you know Comcast raising its hand and making a run at Sky derails the Fox issue. This is a version of the Walt Disney Company that owns Fox outright and could take a very different approach to Avatar. And do you think that that would be the basis for a third park, that they could do something like an Animal Kingdom in in Europe? When you talk with the folks for Galaxy's Edge, when they started their development process, the whole notion was, all right, so do we take them to Tatooine? Uh, Do we take them to Hoth? And then it was like, well, wait a minute. If we take them to Tatooine, that's Luke's story. Or we go yeah. to Hoth, that's that's Leia, that's Han. What we really want to do with Galaxy's Edge is we want you to have your Star Wars adventure. And I can't help but think that when you look at Avatar, we have all of these worlds that we haven't seen yet. There's a lot of hard lessons that were learned with Avatar. I mean, the number of people who have, you know, injured themselves on textured pavement or the lower light levels. <laughs> Walked into a flower and lost part of their skull, yeah. Yeah, I promise you that when they revisit this, it will be finessed and we will see other aspects of these other films that are set on Pandora or in and around that environment. But at the same time, I would bet you you're also going to see sort of the Galaxy's Edge conceit that it's your adventure. I actually like that idea for Galaxy's Edge because, number one, it adds an element of unpredictability. Mm -hmm. So again, if you're on Tatooine, you know how the events of Tatooine play out. They were talking about when they were designing Galaxy's Edge. We want it romantic. We want it mysterious. We want it historic. We want this place to feel ancient, but also authentically Star Wars. And so that's why when they did the research trip, they went to Istanbul. They went to Morocco. In fact, what's funny, Chris Beatty in the presentation was talking about, and I mean the real Morocco, we didn't go to Epcot. Don't get me wrong. That's that's a nice Morocco. It is. It's actually got the dog leg path thing that you mentioned earlier in the show. And I think Morocco is actually one of the best executed pavilions. I think that in France. If you want to talk about authentic, the king of Morocco himself sent over (laughs) artisans. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's like, I'm sending you my Thai guys. So it's like, okay. I got a guy. He'll be over in a minute. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) He does house calls. 
But he was talking about how he wanted the feeling to be that if you came around a corner and you, hey, I could get mugged, sort of that, that element of danger, that hint. So they're over in the actual marketplaces of Morocco. They check out the wonderful alleyways, and then they'd go back to the hotel, and it's like, okay, this is Morocco. How do we do this in Batu? I mean, when you hear right. that like ambient sound of the marketplace, it's like, all right, so what is that in Batu? Is that like two droids arguing a street down, or is that some sort of weird music coming out of a hovel that's on the top of a building? It's one thing to go to a place that's authentic and been there for hundreds of years. It's quite another to build this thing right up out of the ground yeah. and then deal with Americans with Disabilities Act and then figure out how do we put in the phone chargers and yet deliver a quality experience. You'll love this. The very last image of the presentation that they showed at the, the Galactic Nice Present event showed the tray of blue milk. Okay, so we knew that was going to happen. Go ahead. All right. Do you remember in The Last Jedi where Luke goes down to the waterfront and is the equivalent no, of... Yes. No. Yes. They're going to sell green milk, Len. Do you have to milk the animal that looked like a giant manatee to do this? I have no idea. It'll be an extra charge. It'll be the, the late night experience. But they yeah. showed there's the blue milk and the green milk and Chris Beatty said flat out Scott Trowbridge and I went to this meeting and the Disney Foods people, they brought them 30 different varieties. I wonder if it could be f flavored. Oh, I don't know. Because chocolate milk has a certain flavor. I mean, you could do like white chocolate in food diet and see what happens. I guess. Have you seen these trading cards they gave out at the event that sort of had imagery from Galaxy's Edge? No, I've not. Do you have copies of them? I've seen them online. I'll just see if I can chase them down for us. But one of the images, and evidently this is a vignette you'll get to see, is a cart pulls into the marketplace. And there in the back of the cart are these jars full of the blue milk, which they then haul into a store with the notion of, hey, this blue milk has just come in from the countryside where we harvested it, so it's fresh, so come and get your blue milk. There's a lot of disturbing parts of that, not the least of which is a lack of pasteurization as far as I'm concerned, but... Just understanding all of this, just under the dog leg passages, the marketplace, the, the whole thing, this is why when you talk with the people in ops, when you talk with the people in regard to admissions material, it's a magic eight ball moment. It's like, yeah. we don't know. They're a year and change out. Some of these things have to be finalized pretty soon, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were talking about the lessons from Pandora, the, the world of Avatar. I mean, just the fact that we don't want another Banshee situation. We don't right. want to go clean in our first two weeks of operation. Don't get me wrong, you know, Disney's perfectly happy to bump the prices of things $10 at a time that are popular, but at the same time, the number of guests who walked away disappointed and weren't able to buy Banshees, yeah. they don't want a repeat of that. But at the same time, they don't want a warehouse full of hand-tooled walkers where it's like, Jesus, nobody bought one of these. Yeah. Now what do we do? It's like, well, we clear space in like the landfill where they have the Atari ET game. <laughs> Let me ask you the one, one quick question, and sure. it's related to Star Wars, and we'll mm -hmm. end on this. The Han Solo movie that's coming out yep. later this year, mm -hmm. there have been rumors that the movie didn't actually test very well early on. Is that largely rectified now, or...? If you want a fun exercise, Len, what you want to do is go take a look at the very first teaser trailer of Rogue One. 
all those wonderful scenes of people running through the water or the stormtroopers who were waiting along the beach, the young lady standing at the top of the tower being threatened by the TIE fighter, and then go watch the movie. And it's like, well, where did these scenes go? Between the time they made the teaser trailer and they released that, Kathleen Kennedy looked at the movie and went, we can do better. The Darth Vader fight, the scene that gets such a huge reaction in the theater, they shot that three weeks before the movie came out? This is actually part of the Marvel playbook as well. I mean, just the movie isn't done until you finally hand it off to the folks who have to do the, the final post work, record yeah. the score, and send the print off to Dolby. Lord and Miller, the two gentlemen who were working on this previously, who've done wonderful work with the Lego movies. It was a question of Kathleen has in her head the way these films, especially these Star Wars story movies. I mean, it's one thing to do the stuff that's continuing the trilogy. By the way, that's the other bit of news coming out of Star Wars land that the new film, when Nine comes out in 2020 or thereabouts, it's not a trilogy anymore. It's a continuing series. I think I think we all assumed when Disney bought it that it would be a continuing series, that Nine would not be the end. Yeah, but the, particularly with these Star Wars stories, with the notion that you're going to get to spend time with Boba Fett, you're going to get to spend time with... Obi-Wan Kenobi during the years when he's supposedly on Tatooine waiting for Luke to grow up. These stories especially are much, that much harder to craft and yeah. how Han Solo became Han Solo. How yeah. we've heard him talk about the Kessel Run. Well, that's the thing that's interesting because from what I understand in the movie, mm -hmm. Lando Calrissian is the owner of the Millennium Falcon when things start. Yep. And we know that Lando sells Han out in Empire. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a story there that has to has to get explained, right? Absolutely. In much the same way as with Rogue One. Well, who actually got the Death Star plans? I mean, it's just this story element that we've known for years, but we have certain expectations. People, when they finally see the Kessel Run, that it, it's got to be amazing because it's yeah, how many parsecs did he do it in? Yeah. When they brought in Ron Howard, one of the reasons they reached out to Ron was Lucasfilm had a relationship with him. This is a guy who's who's done genre films before. This is a guy who, when you look at Apollo 13, has obviously handled effects pictures before. He was somebody they could drop in the deep end and with their pre-existing relationship. And, okay, this mm -hmm. is a guy who can turn this around. But he's also somebody who's worked in the industry a long time and understands that, okay, we're two weeks out. We need to reshoot that scene. And it's like, okay. <laughs> Let's get everybody back together. Yeah, I'm going to just sort of, that, that's what you do. I mean... The fact that we didn't get a, our first trailer till the day after the, the Super Bowl, we're still waiting on the really for real trailer at this point. They are working as fast as they can. And from what I'm hearing from friends and, and associates who were working around the project, it is finally coming together. There was, there was kind of a scary period where a lot of stuff that was done with Miller and Lord had to sort of be set aside and for tone issues and that sort of thing. I'm going to love to see this if it comes out on a director's Blu-ray one day, because if it was that dark or whatever, I, I am super excited. The hard reality is that a lot of the effects footage was never completed. For story reasons, things got jettisoned or they redid scenes. 
to change tone or that sort of thing. So it's the equivalent of doing a jigsaw puzzle and somebody handing you, it's like, well, you know, all that blue sky stuff, I have some red sky and I have some green sky, and but you'll have to get a ball-peen hammer to get it to fit in. <laughs> exactly. All right, Jim, let's leave it off there. Uh, interestingly, the thing that we're going to talk about for our chronological Disneyland piece kind of fits into this. It's what happened when uh, Disney realized it needed help from external directors in its theme parks. And we're going to talk specifically about uh, what Spielberg, Lucas, uh, Indiana Jones, and there we go. The Star Trek, this right? is a great right. story, but we'll get to it the next time around. All right, folks. You've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes, our Stitcher, or your local Moroccan cafe wall and leave us a review and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.